Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Assistant Professor Mark Sheffield from the Department of Neurobiology. Professor Sheffield is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome, Professor Mark Sheffield. Thank you for joining us on the course. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Mark, can you give us a general overview of your career path from your years in college all the way to being a professor at the University of Chicago? I can. That's a quite a long answer. So it sort of starts back in after high school. So I left high school early when I was 16. I didn't have a uh, a ton of education at the time. I went to a school in the town that I grew up in, which was a town that has very high unemployment and a lot of crime. It's a very working class town. And so the people I was surrounded by at the time were not academics. No one in my family had been to university and, and I actually didn't know anyone at the time that had done anything like that. So school for me was about getting through the day, surviving. It wasn't about academics or really learning. And so my career trajectory as becoming professor started much later in my life. So I left school at 16. And after that, I worked for London Underground, actually. Uh, and I, I fixed trains. So it was an apprenticeship where I would work under the trains and, and change the brake pads and this kind of this kind of work. And I did that from the age of about 16 to 19, maybe 20. And during that time was when I sort of developed uh, a taste for academia. And it wasn't through work or anything like that. It was my journey to and from work. I had a, a long journey. It took two and a half hours to get to work the same to get home. So I did a lot of reading on the train. And over time, I started to have, I started to read books on, on popular science. And so I, I didn't know much about this, this field. I didn't know much about science in general. And I sort of just developed this interest in, in science in general, just by reading these books. And so that sort of kicked me off really with my interest in science. And one of the key things that happened was during this time, I had a friend who lived in the same town as me who had family in Peru. And he invited me to go back to Peru with him for, I think he was going for four or five weeks or something. And so I went on this trip with him. I'd never even been on a plane, never really left, left this little town in, in, in England before. And what happened there was sort of something that really changed the trajectory of my career path. I got there, my friend was, you know, hanging out with his friends and family and they were speaking Spanish. I couldn't speak Spanish. And so I, I was feeling a little lonely at the time. And so I started reading and his dad had a number of English written books in his house. And, and a lot of those were, were science books. And so I, I developed this uh, a taste for science as I was commuting to and from work. And so I started reading these books and I got really into them. And I had this one particular book, it's called The Selfish Gene by, actually, I forget the name, Daw Richard Dawkins, of course, Richard Dawkins. And so I, I read this book and I, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I was enthralled by it. It was about evolution 
and how genes are the selfish components that propagate evolution. And I uh, was fascinated by this whole concept. And I couldn't stop talking about it. And Carlos, who's my friend who, who took me to Peru, was like, you, you should think about going back to school. You know, you're, you love this kind of stuff. You should think about doing something different. And it planted a seed that just grew from that point. When I got back to England, I, I totally changed my trajectory. I, I quit my job. I went to community college and I started studying A-levels. So in England, you, you take these exams, they're called A-levels, they take two years. And based on your grades from your A-levels gets you into a, a university. So I went back to community college, studied A-levels in biology, physics and psychology. And so this really started me on the, on, on the journey right, to academia. And I I did okay. It was quite a challenging time. I didn't have much background, educational background. And so going back to school was really tough. I found it very difficult in the class. I, I didn't know um, enough fundamentals. So it really required me to push myself. And, and I did that by going to the library before class and after class and basically fill in the gaps in my knowledge. Um, to just basically try to understand the classes that I, I was taking. But it became a, a good skill that I developed at that time and, and has helped me throughout, throughout my career, which is, you know, to try, try and push yourself and, and go beyond, you know, just what is taught in the class. So it really helped me. And in the end, after my two years in community college, I did fairly well and I got uh, A-levels that got me into a, a good college, a good university, University of Nottingham in, in England. And so that kicked that off. And so I went, I went and studied neuroscience at the University of Nottingham. I was fascinated at the time by the brain. And an, a lot of neuroscientists will tell you this, is what, what brings them into studying neuroscience? Why neuroscience? And I think a lot of the answers are we want to understand how the brain is consciously aware. We want to know, we want to understand consciousness. We think it's in there, it's in the brain, it's within the activity and the connections in the brain. We don't know how it works. And it's a fascinating problem. How can an organ that's connected, is wired up, between, of, and neurons wired together, bring about conscious self-awareness? It's, it's an incredible problem. And it's fascinating. And we don't under, we still have, don't understand it, and that sort of triggered my interest in neuroscience. And so I went from the University of Nottingham to Northwestern in Chicago. So during my time at Nottingham, I realised I liked doing research. I had a year at Nottingham where I worked at GlaxoSmithKline. It was a it was a placement year where I worked at this drug company, basically doing research. I got a taste of research for the first time, found it fascinating. And so that sort of triggered me to then go to the next level, graduate school. And so I started thinking about what does this entail? And so I fig figured out, okay, PhD or master's is the, is the next level. And so that took me to thinking about, well, where do I want to do that? And I thought, you know, this is an opportunity to go experience somewhere else, right? So I was looking at places in the US. I thought that would be uh, a cool thing to do, go to the US to, to get a PhD. So I applied to a few places. I got into Northwestern, which is on the north side of Chicago. 
And I had no family here or friends or anything. And I, I did all my interviews over, over the phone. And then I just packed my bag and I flew to Chicago. I'd never been to the US. And I, I started graduate school. I figured it out and I found myself a place. And I started graduate school at Northwestern, again, studying neuroscience. And um, I joined a lab there, Nelson Spruston's lab, trying to understand memory, the mechanisms of memory. And I've stayed within that field ever since. So I did a postdoc at Northwestern, and then I started my own lab as a professor at the University of Chicago in, in 2017. So now I have my own lab studying the mechanisms of memory. And I can talk more about that if you need. Yeah, Mark, how would you describe to someone who has no background in your research, the kind of research that you currently do? Yeah, that's a great question. So. The focus of my research group is to try to figure out how the brain learns new information. That's essentially what memory is and how the brain recalls that information. That's memory recall. And so when you learn something new, something in your brain changes in order to store that information. And so there are mechanisms that underlie that process, and it's a very complex process. We know that a key brain structure involved in forming memories and recalling memories is the hippocampus, and these are specific kinds of memories that we call episodic memories. These are your memories of your personal experiences. So if you imagine uh, sort of an experience you had in the past of maybe uh, when you were a kid, you went to the beach or something, and you you recall that memory, that would be an example of an episodic memory. It occurred at a certain time that you can remember, a certain place that you remember, and there's a certain experience there being on the beach. That's an example of an episodic memory, and the hippocampus is central to the formation and recall of those memories. So in in my lab, we try to understand what the mechanisms of the formation and recall of those types of memories are. And so we focus on the hippocampus and we use um, mice to study these kind of processes. And there are many reasons we do that that I can go into. But one of the essential ones is that we have a lot of control over the animal's experience. So in my lab, we use virtual reality to build environments in which these mice navigate around it. And so we can precisely control those virtual spaces. So we can trigger the animal to learn about new environments, recall old environments. And we do this while we're imaging the activity of this brain structure, the hippocampus. And so we're trying to capture the activity that is essential for the formation of these kinds of memories and the activity required to retrieve or recall those memories. And we want to understand at the mechanistic level how the brain performs these processes. That's fascinating. And I want to step back to your background, Mark, because I imagine that when you were in middle or high school, you had no idea that this would be the type of work that you would be doing today. But when you look back on your youth, your experiences in secondary school, is there anything, any memories that come to mind that make you think, oh yeah, the seeds were there all along. It makes sense today that I am where I am. Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, and something I have thought about 
because of where I was living and where I grew up, it wasn't explicit to me at the time because schooling, like I said, was not really about learning. It was more about survival. And so really, if I think back, were, were there any signs of, of these interests back then, at, maybe outside of school? I think there were. And, and one of the things is that I've always been attracted to mystery. I always, I've always, even as a kid, wanted to understand things that were unknown. And those things at the time were not necessarily within the realm of science. I was interested in, in all kinds of things at the time that were mysterious. And, and some of those things, like at the time, for example, when I was a kid, I was interested in, in UFOs, was, was something that I was absolutely fascinated about. Or whether there was life after death and, and ghosts and all this kind of stuff. When I was very young, these kind of mysteries within the world were very attractive to me. I was always thinking about these things. And it, it, I think that is part of it because even now, the scientific questions that we ask in, in my lab are all driven by mystery. We want to understand the unknown. Obviously, now it's focused within uh, the realms of science. So we have a scientific method to test our ideas and our hypotheses. But it's still the mystery that drives me. I want to understand how the brain can form and recall memories. I find that fascinating. I mean, it's such a big component of who we are. And I mean, you could ask the question, who would you be without your episodic memories? If you could not remember your past ex personal experiences, what would, who would you be after that? What, where does that leave? Where does that leave you? And that's a, that's a huge kind of mystery. So I want to understand right now is how does the brain perform this amazing feat really so yeah i think there are signs that mis mystery and trying to understand the unknown was always there it's always been there in in some aspect even when i was a kid i mean given that you weren't the bookish type of kid and that getting through school was about surviving not necessarily thriving in an academic setting i'm curious if there were any particularly tough challenges that came your way while you were working towards the career that you have now as a professor at the University of Chicago? What was the biggest challenge you faced and how did you overcome that? By far, the biggest challenge is overcoming um, imposter syndrome. I mean, this is a common thing, I think, for people when they move to the le next level of any career. But for me in particular, that was very strong because I didn't have any family or friends who had gone to university to even get an undergraduate degree or anything, I, I, I entered a world that I knew nothing about. I had no experience within that world. And so I've always felt like this outsider who came into this academic world. It's unfamiliar to me on the outset and, and still remains so in, in some ways. You know, a, a lot of professors, and not everyone, there are a lot of interesting stories that people have that I'm sure you'll come across on this podcast, but a lot of professors come from, um, you know, a lineage of professors or academics in some way. And so that breaks down this barrier. It's helpful. And there's a high correlation between becoming a tenured professor and whether your parents were professors. So entering this world of academia 
from the outside and not being familiar with this world in any way really creates this kind of imposter syndrome. I, should I be here? Do I deserve to be here? Do I have the background? Do I really know enough? Am I able to learn You know how this whole thing works? That has been the toughest thing. Well, I, I was going to say to overcome, but I don't think I will ever completely overcome that. Your experiences are, as a child stay with you throughout your life. And so that's always going to be there. Even, you know, I, I can look back and say, well, I was successful at this stage and this stage and, you know, I am where I am. And, but there's still a level of imposter syndrome that I think I'll always carry. So I don't think I'd totally overcome it. I just, I do it anyway. I want to be a scientist. I'm interested in this world. And I, I absolutely love my career. And even though I have this feeling of being an imposter, I've come to terms with it. And I also feel now with experience that doing good science takes uh, all kinds of characters. It, it, takes, it takes a community to come at these questions, these difficult questions, in myriad different ways. You want people with different backgrounds. You, you need diversity. If every professor was the same and had the same background, we wouldn't make the progress that we need to make. We need the diversity. So I think some, in some ways, my particular background brings me a particular perspective and a, a particular angle in which I come at these questions. And so I think that there's something to that that's important. So I haven't overcome this imposter syndrome. It's still part of me, but I've learned to think about it in a different way. And I think there's some advantages to it. I really appreciate that insight. And I think the challenge of imposter syndrome is something that many of us can relate to. So I know that you've done a lot of work to get to where you are, but is there anyone in particular along the journey? This could be a friend, a colleague, a family member, someone who has been there with you to support you and has helped you move forward and get to where you are now. It's a great question. And I would, I would say that at the very beginning, when I made this transition from, you know, working on London Underground fixing trains to going back to school, I think importantly at that time was my friendship with Carlos. And he's still my friend now. Um, we remain in close contact. He lives in Australia now, but we're in close contact. And at the time, the support that I had really came from him and his family, who they had some experience in academia. And, and Carlos was on that sort of trajectory. And he was the only person I knew in my life that was on that kind of path. And so when I made the decision to quit my job and go back to school, actually, my family were not happy about that. In particular, my mum was disappointed because I at least had a job in this town I'm from, very high unemployment. And so having a job and bringing in income was the goal of many people. And I had that. And so I was, my, in my mum's eyes, I was throwing away a, a good job in order to go back to school and earn no money. And so that was, you know, she saw that as me kind of failing or giving up in some way. And so that made it tough, not having support from family in particular. Um, but Carlos was there and, and Carlos's family were around 
And they were a big part of that that gave me sort of the confidence to keep going. When I went back to community college at the very beginning, I did question my decision because I was sitting in the class and I'm thinking, oh man, I don't know anything. I have such a long road to go down to catch up, to fill in these gaps in my knowledge, and then to progress further. I just thought, wow, can I do this? Maybe I've made the wrong decision. I could be, you know, earning money, uh, that kind of thing. And that was tough. But Carlos and his family were, you know, proud of what I'd done. And so I, I I had those around me. And so, you know, I have to thank them for their support and at least, you know, showing me there's another way. And this other way can get you out of, um, you know, this uh, toxic environment that you're in and put you in a, a better place in life and, and, and to do something that you, you, you're passionate about. And so I have a lot to thank to Carlos and his family. And that stayed with me throughout my career. Um, and then as I've gone along the journey, there's been, you know, people that have come in and out of my life on the way that have also been very supportive. And now that I, you know, my wife is totally supportive of what I do and she finds the research that I'm working on totally fascinating. And so I have, I have support now, which, which is nice. Mark, I want to ask you, what would your advice be for someone who is interested in going into your field? And I'm thinking particularly you know, someone that doesn't come from the lineage that you mentioned, someone mm-hmm. whose family isn't highly educated and mm-hmm. affluent, someone who, more like you were when you were a kid, a teenager, and a young adult. Yeah, a great question and an important one, I think. And, and at the core of that is if you have the passion for some, let's just talk about science, but it could be anything. If you have that passion and you found that passion, good for you, because that is a really tough thing to understand about yourself. You have to have the passion and you have to have the grit and determination that when the failure happens, you don't take it personally. You see it as a learning experience and you push on. And that's a really important component of getting science done. You need people and characters that can withstand that kind of failure. And finally, Mark, what is the most gratifying thing about the work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think there's a number of parts. One thing that has struck me that I I didn't know when I started my own lab is I get a lot of I get a lot of personal a sense of achievement when the people in my lab do well when they win awards, grants, or have successful experiments. And so, you know, before you start your own lab as a professor, it's all about you doing experiments. And so it's about you being published and your personal success. When you start your own lab, now you've got a group of people that are sort of working with you or for you. And those guys are doing the work, really. They're doing the day-to-day stuff. They're doing the experiments and getting the findings. And and their success is somewhat your success as well. But seeing these people grow as people and as scientists is really satisfying. I didn't foresee this ahead of time. I've always been focused on the science and thinking, you know, getting the publications and making the discoveries is going to be the most 
important part and satisfying part of my career. I'm realizing now that it's actually the people in my lab and their successes that are becoming more important to me. And, And I find that super satisfying. And I think, you know, my biggest contribution to science will probably be in the end, the people I, I mentor and the people I train, because I will train and mentor far more people than I will publish papers, for example. So I see, I'll have a contribution to science, hopefully, but my biggest contribution will be the training of the next generation. I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. I've been speaking with Assistant Professor Mark Sheffield. Professor, thank you for your time. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Thanks for listening. 